On the night of Tuesday the 17th of April, 1906, the great Neapolitan tenor Enrico Caruso was appearing as Don Jose in Carmen at the Grand Opera House in San Francisco. The opening night was the great event of the season. You can imagine the glittering scene. Everywhere were diamonds, white shoulders, magnificent eyes, silf-waisted women in lace worthy of a queen, with lustrous oriental pearls wrapped around lovely throats, in all breathtakingly beautiful. After his lauded performance, Caruso returned to his hotel a few blocks away. The Palace Hotel, like the Opera House, was one of the splendid architectural treasures of the Gilded Age. Enrico Caruso retired to his room at around three o'clock. The earthquake struck at 5.18. A minute later, the city was in ruins. The hotel seemed to dance a jig, someone said. The palm trees in the courtyard swayed. The horses took off from the front porch, wild eyes and nostrils frothing, and the cobblestones in the streets were reported to be alive. When the Met conductor rushed the great tenor's room, Caruso was apparently sitting bolt right up in bed, terrified. Both the Palace Hotel and the Grand Opera House were destroyed in the earthquake and the fires that followed it. In November 2022, my sister Ruth and I enjoyed breakfast in the rebuilt Palace Hotel's gloriously restored Fan de Siècle double-storey ballroom. You can almost hear the echo of an orchestra playing that night as the newly wealthy elite waltz on the edge of an abyss which was about to engulf their city. I'd come to California in my zealous pilgrimage to find all the surviving copies of Shakespeare's first folio to discover what had happened to two folios purchased by the one-time mayor of San Francisco, Adolf Sutro. The Prussian-born collector had made a tour of Europe in the 1880s specifically to purchase books so that he could build a library which would, he said, compare with any in the world. We headed out to the Sutro Library at the north campus of San Francisco State University to meet the librarian, Matti Termina. As you enter the library, there's a full-length portrait of its founder, Adolf Sutro, with his high, bald pate and fine, silver, mutton-chop beard. The epitome of an American self-made millionaire. Adolf Sutro, so he was a one-time mayor of San Francisco, and he was actually the second Jewish mayor in all of the United States. So he was a huge philanthropist. Um, he made his money in Nevada doing the Comstock strike, which is a silver strike, the largest uh, silver, the silver strike. Mines. Yeah, yeah. Silver mines. And so he was an engineer, self-taught, believe it or not. He's from Prussia. He comes over to California during the gold rush. 
and he starts to do various things like most gold, <laughs> gold rush folks do. He started to sell cigars. He started to do kind of general merchandise, but he ends up basically using his engineering skills to go to Nevada and drain the Comstock uh, mines. They were very hot, had natural hot water. The people who were mining in those mines were starting to almost bake. It was very dangerous, very uncomfortable. So Sutro figured out a way to drain all those mines through something called the Sutro Tunnel so people could safely mine silver. He made a lot of money doing that. And when he was done with that, he came back to the city that he adopted and loved, San Francisco, and started to buy up real estate. He started to do uh, other philanthropic things like basically start Arbor Day for the state of California, uh, protect the seas, the sea lions that we have out here on some of the rocks. <laughs> he was, had his hand in everything, and then he finally decided to run for mayor and then died subsequently, like, within two to three years after he was done with his mayoralship. Right. And, and when does he become interested in books? <laughs> oh, I think in the uterus. <laughs> he was a lifelong bibliophile. There's one story that said that he got an allowance when he was a child. His family were cloth makers. They were very much um, probably well-to-do, but merchants, right? Yeah. And so he got an allowance, and he spent his allowance every time that he got it over. So he was always in arrears, and he would buy books, right. constantly buying books. So he had his own kind of passion for this. As and this goes, is in Prussia. <clears throat> this is in Prussia, but it, it kept going even here. His whole life, he would have this passion for books and started to amass, in essence, what would become a world-class library. It was the largest library in private hands in the United States at the time when he died. And he had agents all over the world, agents in um, Egypt, Japan, Asia, like Africa, England, of course, everywhere. He would buy massive amounts of books. It, we would call it, I don't know if you have Costco, but it was a Costco model. <laughs> you come in, you big buy a big box. Yeah. What's in the box? He'd buy it all, yeah. um, even sometimes sight unseen. So he went into a monastic library, dropped a lot of gold coins, bought the entire monastic library, which included a lot of the Middle Age uh, periods, artifacts that we have in the Middle Ages, yeah. is how he actually acquired that. Uh, he went into Mexico, was on a book buying trip there, went into the Aviano bookstore, which is the oldest bookstore in the New World. They were closing, and he just looked at it and said, I'll take the whole lot, including the trash cans. So we have everything from the Aviano bookstore, including what was in the trash. Wow. So wow. he had a massive buying power. So he had a massive amount of books. Wow. And he stored them all with the intent, of course, of founding an incredible research library, open, free, and clear to the public. No academic affiliation. You could just walk in, and you would get the same educational experience that you could get at Cal or Harvard or anywhere. At the time, this was a very revolutionary idea. And what, so what year does that library open? Do you know? It doesn't. <laughs> but in San Francisco? So pre-quake? He, he never got to fulfill his dream. Oh. So he stored everything in two warehouses. And people were coming, like the president of Cornell came to his library. You know, it's all in boxes. He has a librarian on staff. They're doing bindery work. And he's getting kind of ready to do this, but he hasn't really solidified where it's going to be. But unfortunately, a lot of people were talking to him and saying, like, why would you put your books so close to the ocean? You know, the sea air <laughs> and that kind of salty brine. We know yeah. what it does to cars. Yeah. Yeah. 
can you imagine what's going to take books? Box. Remember, refrigeration isn't occurring at this time really yeah. Yeah. On, on a massive scale. Yeah. This is 1880s. So there's some hesitation. And I think he was just thinking about it and researching and still buying books like crazy. Never got around to it. And then when he passed away and it was rather sudden, his will hadn't been updated either. And, and no wife? No um, he did have a wife. They were estranged. <clears throat> And he did have a lot of kids. <laughs> so unfortunately, with this older will and a lot of children, oh. and you have the world's largest private library oh, that contains a mummy. A mummy? He also, yeah, it's not just books and paper. It's also artifacts, too. He had one of the only mummies on the West Coast out of Egypt. Wow. So, I mean, there were things in this collection, and you have a lot of heirs. So then litigation occurs so while the two two warehouses are holding the world's beautiful most beautiful treasures there's one statistic that says one out of every seven in cannabula on earth right early cradle books yeah, so first printing before printing the first printing within the first 50 years of the printing press being introduced to the west so these are these are very important books right. one out of every seven on earth was held by sutra oh. Wow. So there were things to see wow. and things to fight over. Yeah. Sutro had made his money draining silver mines in the Comstock Lode in Nevada in the 1860s. On his return to San Francisco, he built himself a seven-story gingerbread palace up on the bluffs of Sutro Heights. His determination to build a world-class library to house his huge collection of books was sadly disappointed and the library remained unbuilt on his death in 1898. Many of the precious items from his collection, including his copy of the first folio, were stored in two warehouses, one that was fireproof and one that was not. When the great earthquake jolted the city to the ground that terrible night in 1906, one of these warehouses was burnt to the ground, but Sutro's daughter, Emma, was able to take her horse-driven buggy through the burning city and rescue the folio from the second warehouse before it all turned to ash. Um, and so, unfortunately, 1906, uh, in fact, I have an exact date, because, you know, who doesn't love a date? Right. 521 in the morning, um, so you can imagine being awoken by that. Yeah, uh, yeah 521 in the morning, April 18th, 1906, we have a magnitude of 7.9 on the Richter scale. Rather large, that rocks the city of San Francisco. And at that point, <laughs> half of the citizens of the city become homeless. It kills nearly 3,000 people. So this is a major disaster. In fact, it's still considered one of the biggest disasters in US history. And you have these two warehouses. One warehouse is fireproof. The other one is not. And the one that is not, obviously, tragically, you know, burns, right? But the one that is, everything that was in that warehouse survived. Granted, a little damaged, as you can imagine, but it does survive. So luckily, this one was presumably in the right warehouse. It was right. in the right warehouse. Actually, did anything get saved from the other, from the second warehouse? Not that I'm aware of. Gosh. I mean, it is a true, true loss. Statistics, I've heard everything from half the collection was gone. I've heard a third of the collection was gone. I've heard... One fourth of the collection was gone. I, since it was never open to the public, we don't know exactly what was in the library. We don't know how many volumes were in the library. We don't know how many volumes were stored one versus the other. 
we don't even know the collecting decisions. Why did some go into the fireproof mm. one? Why did some did? And no catalog. No, we have some cards, like no almost like this, there. but I don't think that they're complete. Um, he was working on it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's yeah. like we, all of us in our lives. We're always working on it, and you're not expecting yeah. something like Should this I to happen. And unfortunately, even with him past, his heirs are still not thinking that way. You know, they're fighting. They could have easily moved the collections to some other place that was safer, but they didn't. So then this huge disaster happens. We have the distinction, the Sutro Library being the only library to survive the 1906 earthquake and fire. I don't know if that's really a badge of honor per se, but as someone who's interested in collections, <laughs> somebody who's interested in collections, that's a really big deal, right? Because, you know, just imagine if fire that consumed the Alexandria Library had, you know, exactly. saved something, exactly. right? So yeah. these, these things happen. We're always kind of the tragedy of uh, fires and earthquakes and floods. So it's something that's always on our mind. This library survived, but it did not survive um, easily. So smoke damage, it definitely did some damage to the material. So when the State Library ended up getting this collection in 1913, when the heirs finally realized if we keep fighting, something else could happen. <laughs> Let's figure this out. Maybe a world war. It still took another six years, right? Wow. Six, seven years. But by the time they finally decided to give it to the State Library in 1913, this library had already gone through trauma. I mean, that's a major, <laughs> a major thing to have gone through. So mm. at that point, we were already receiving a world-class library, what's left, and it has gone through something unreal that had wiped out every other library in the city. Yeah, so this letter, there is that, um, let's just say myth, <laughs> or folklore. I know, I like to say folklore. That Emma ran into the brain oh, yes. and I saved the first folio. This so, is a uh, recent Emma acquisition. Being a... Being a a daughter. She's the daughter, Emma Sutro Merritt. She was the, um, the eldest daughter, the eldest child of Adolf Sutro, and a doctor in her own right. She had married a doctor as well, educated at Vassar University back east. The story goes that the fire is raging after the earthquake, and she runs into the warehouse and saves the first Wow. <laughs> and I love this story. I have yeah. done that. Because she's a huge <laughs> bibliophile herself. She wow. has deep respect for her father. She was probably most like her father than, you know, other, other children there because she was obviously the oldest. Yes. So this does make sense. Yes. Um, and, of course, we want to believe that. But the, <laughs> As librarians, we want to believe somebody would run into the burning building and save this precious book. True or not, it's a great heroic story, evoking spectacular shades of Rhett Butler and Scarlett O'Hara galloping through a burning Atlanta at the end of Gone with the Wind. In the final pages of Sidney Lee's 1902 census of first folios, he mentions two copies which have been destroyed one by fire and one by sea. The fire was the great Chicago fire of 1871, and it all began with Mrs. O'Leary's cow. Catherine O'Leary was an Irish immigrant living in the windy city Chicago, Illinois, on the night of October the 8th, 1871, the story goes, Mrs. O'Leary was milking her cow in her barn when the cow kicked over the oil lamp and set the barn ablaze. 
the resulting conflagration, spread by a high wind, destroyed a large part of the city. Some said Mrs O'Leary was drunk, or that it was her sons who had been gambling in the barn that night who started the fire. Either way, it fed into a wave of anti-Irish and anti-immigrant prejudice in the city at the time, and the O'Learys were made scapegoats. Chicago was a city built predominantly in timber, with two-thirds of the buildings made of wood and highly combustible tar roofs. Even the sidewalks were made of wood. The Great Chicago Fire destroyed over three square miles of the city in a tornado of flame known as a fire swirl, which left more than 100,000 Chicago citizens without homes. Up to 300 people were said to have died. And according to Sidney Lee, among the immense destruction of personal property, one Mr. J. W. McCagg lost his first folio. After the fire, aid poured in from all over the United States, and the United Kingdom joined in with an unusual offer of help. In sympathy with Chicago and the suffering her citizens endured, an English book donation was organised, supported by Queen Victoria herself. Six months later, the City Council passed the ordinance to establish the Free Chicago Library, starting with the UK's donation of more than 8,000 books. The first library was built in an old, abandoned iron water tank, and its first head librarian eventually set up the Newbury Library in Washington Square, Chicago. In 1900, a Shakespeare first folio returned to Chicago when the Newbury Library acquired a copy for a thousand pounds. The second destroyed copy mentioned by Sidney Lee was lost at sea. On September the 27th, 1854, a steamship called the SS Arctic was sailing from Liverpool to New York. It was an ultra-modern American vessel, a wooden side-wheeled steamer. The cargo on the West East journey would include cotton, grain, whale oil and bullion. The return trip would carry passengers and goods to import into the States. On board this particular trip was a very special parcel, eagerly expected by a New York lawyer and art collector called Almond W. Griswold, his newly purchased copy of Shakespeare's first folio. Below decks, two dozen firemen and two dozen coal heavers constantly fed the furnaces, maintaining an average speed of 13 knots. The SS Arctic had already made the record for the fastest west-east crossing of the Atlantic. As they reached the Grand Banks, lying east of Newfoundland, a thick mist shrouded the ship. Mists like this are a familiar weather pattern in these parts, as air, warmed by the Gulf Stream, meets the chill waters of the Labrador Current. But suddenly, out of the fog, off the starboard bow, 
a bark-rigged steamer under a full press of sail came ploughing towards the Arctic and rammed into her side. The Vesta was a steamer registered in France, carrying 147 fishermen and salters and their catch of halibut and cod back to Europe. The SS Arctic may have been three times the size of the Vesta, but the liner was made of wood, the French steamer was made of iron plates. In the minutes that followed, as the Arctic's hull rapidly filled with thousands of gallons of seawater, the ship began to list and chaos reigned. The firemen and coal heavers ran up from below decks and despite the roars from the captain, they shoved the passengers aside as they tried to clamber into the lifeboats and the crew quickly followed suit. On the SS Arctic, 250 passengers abandoned on board went down with the ship. Of the survivors, 83 of them were members of the crew and none of them were women or children. Almond W. Griswold never received his precious parcel with its first folio of Shakespeare's plays. Lord, Lord, methought what pain it was to drown. What dreadful noise of water in mine ears. What ugly sights of death within mine eyes. Methought I saw a thousand fearful wrecks. Ten thousand men that fishes gnawed upon. Wedges of gold, great anchors, heaps of pearl, inestimable stones, unvalued jewels, all scattered in the bottom of the sea. Some lay in dead men's skulls, and in those holes where eyes did once inhabit, there were crept, as twere in scorn of eyes, reflecting gems, which wooed the slimy bottom of the deep and mocked the dead bones that lay scattered by. Some books are to be tasted, others to be swallowed, and some few to be chewed and digested, from Francis Bacon's essay of studies. Harry Elkins Widener, Harvard class of 1907, was a prodigious book collector. He came from a Philadelphia family whose immense wealth was derived in part from railroads, steel and tobacco. His indulgent mother, Eleanor, encouraged his passion by giving him not only a copy of Shakespeare's first folio, but a second, third and fourth folio as well. At only 27, he owned a library of 3,000 books, including a Gutenberg Bible, and was already a member of New York's prestigious Grolier Club, a private establishment for prominent bibliophiles. In the spring of 1912, Harry was on a quick trip to Paris and London. His father, George D. Widener, was looking for a chef for his new hotel in Philadelphia, the Ritz-Carlton. In this quick trip to England, Harry Elkins Widener had managed to purchase a 1597 first edition of Francis Bacon's essays. The quarto edition could easily fit in his pocket. Harry was travelling with his family. 
Their party consisted of Harry, his father George and his valet Edwin, and his mother Eleanor and her maid Amelie. Harry's letter to his friend set out his travel plans. We return on April the 10th on the maiden voyage of the Titanic. As Harry helped his mother and her maid into the fourth lifeboat, the story goes that he ran back to his cabin to fetch his copy of Bacon's essays. Another version of the legend suggests he said to his mother, tapping his pocket, Little Bacon goes with me. I wonder what, if any, sustenance or consolation he might have received from Francis Bacon on that terrible night among the icebergs in the North Atlantic. In his essay of death, Bacon writes, But above all believe it, the sweetest canticle is nunc dimitis, now let thy servant depart in peace. When a man hath obtained worthy ends, and expectations. And though, at twenty-seven, Harry Elkins Widener cannot have been said to have fulfilled his potential, he was able to pass on a considerable legacy. Harry's mother and her maid were picked up by the Carpathia when the Titanic foundered. On her return home, Eleanor gave a grant to Harvard to build a library in memory of her son and to house his book collection, including his Shakespeare folios. So, there have been folios that have been rescued from earthquakes, folios that have gone down in shipwrecks and up in flames. Some have been stolen. In 1940, an English professor walked into the Chapin Library of Williams College in Massachusetts and asked to see their first folio, which was housed in a red clamshell box. After a few minutes, he left, telling the librarian he was going to fetch his wife. He never returned. And when the librarian went to check the red clamshell box, there was another book inside a copy of Reynard the Fox, sawn down to size. The English professor turned out to be a shoe salesman who had been hired by a Buffalo crime syndicate to steal the folio. Though Williams College eventually recovered their folio, a copy on display at the Christie Library in Manchester, which disappeared in 1972, has never been recovered. The display case normally held the library's facsimile copy, and the original was only put out when distinguished guests visited. Unfortunately, it was the original folio that was being shown when the theft occurred. But one of the most incredible stories I have heard on my folio roadshow is the tale of the Durham folio. It was kept in the Episcopal Library of the Bishop of Durham, a beautiful 17th-century library with balustraded gallery, built in 1669, known as the Cousins Library, and situated in the close of the ancient cathedral on Palace Green. In December 1998, 
The folio was on display, along with other rare books in the library, when it was stolen. It disappeared for a decade, until one summer day in 2008, when a man walked into the Folger Library in Washington, D.C., asking for help in identifying a book in his possession. He produced a battered first folio in a very sorry state, with its binding completely ripped off. He said he had been given it in Cuba, where apparently it had been kept in a box by the mother of a major in Fidel Castro's army. The librarians knew in a matter of minutes what this battered copy was. They asked the man if they could keep it in overnight to examine it. The man agreed. His name was Raymond Scott. It turned out that he had been on holiday in Havana and had an affair with a hotel worker and nightclub dancer half his age. He somehow needed to fund the playboy lifestyle to which he felt he was entitled, and the first folio might buy that for him. What Scott didn't know was that as a physical object, the first folio is perhaps the most studied volume in the world. Every bookplate, every single manuscript annotation, every watermark and rust spot, every tiny piece of damage or repair has been checked and catalogued. The Folger librarians knew almost immediately that this was the stolen Durham folio. In 2010, Raymond Scott was arrested for handling stolen goods. But he clearly enjoyed the limelight. He quoted Andy Warhol, saying that everybody in the future would be famous for 15 minutes, and this was his 15 minutes. He projected himself as an international playboy. He was not only a fantasist, but a flamboyant narcissist. When he was charged at Durham City Police Station, he arrived in a chauffeur-driven stretched limo, flanked by four burly minders, clutching a bottle of wine, a large Cuban cigar and a pot noodle. One day he attended court dressed as Che Guevara, bragged to the journalists about his yellow Ferrari and then sprayed them all with champagne. He turned up to his trial wearing Valentino sunglasses, Versace silver crocodile skin shoes and a Louis Vuitton bum bag. But despite his ludicrous claims of an extravagant lifestyle with a home in Monte Carlo, the prosecution revealed that, in fact, he had been amassing huge credit card debts of over £90,000 while living on the dole with his 80-year-old mum in a modest terraced house in Tyne and Weir, not ten miles from the scene of the crime. Scott was given an eight-year prison sentence for his part in the theft of the Durham folio. The severity of the sentence shocked many. Wasn't Scott a first-time offender? What danger was he to the general public? Many standard sentences for Class A drug trafficking and rape are not that long. But perhaps that is the point. Somehow Scott's crime was not regarded as just petty theft. The first folio was not just a book. It was an object sacred to our shared heritage and its mutilation at his hands was an act of violation, of desecration, of sacrilege even.
After two years of his harsh custodial sentence, Scott was found one morning in his cell with his throat cut. He had committed suicide. The ultimately tragic story of the Durham Folio is a potent reminder of the dangers of fetishising the first folio and the costs incurred. The price Raymond Scott paid was far too high. The stolen folio was returned to Durham, and when I visited last November with Professor Emma Smith, Senior Collections Manager Tony King showed us the mutilated folio. We were joined by University Librarian Liz Waller and Head of Collections Judy Berg. You can see where these breaks are occurring in the glue is where all those key evidential features are, where you know, the police numbers were looking at it, photographing it. That's caused the damage. Uh, there's my slight misgiving is that the, that's that's the kind of relic model, then, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. saying whatever toenail of the saint yes. that we've got <laughs> is worth keeping. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know uh, there is an element of that, but there's also thing. But isn't it? It's, a bit worrying, it's part it? of a family. Yeah. So there are other folios around yeah. the country that, that that could be viewed alongside this yeah. as being a. This is kind of the, this is what the Shakespeare folio group family is like yeah and it's what role can that play perhaps be in this place to actually inform that scholarship yeah. to, to develop ideas. well that's really interesting to think whether you think of this book mostly in connection with other copies yes. of this book elsewhere yeah. or whether you think about it in relation to what you've got yeah. here and what what's yeah i think that's that seems yeah. a really that's yeah. actually a really helpful way to frame it i'd rather think of it as a network so, so for me the, the interesting around this is, is conservation discussion the ethical discussion and also techniques discussion, so it becomes something that generates that kind of idea yeah. and debate. Um, and it would be, I think, it has to sit alongside other folders because otherwise we're going to go really deep into action around this. And as you say, a lot of it's going to be lost mm. as we do that. But I'm not an expert. So I'm really interested in what the panel. Yeah, yeah that would be really interesting. Yeah. yeah, as long as we're not making uh, a big intervention, future generations can choose to do something else with it yeah, yeah. later on. Yeah. Um, we're not closing that door. What is the discoloration at the bottom? It's very odd, isn't it? It's very dark. So you can see the red is the underlayer for the, um, the gold one. Oh, okay. the of gold. So that would have been underneath the end of the, of the binding. Yeah, anyway. so the, the okay. headband here. Yeah. Now we see yeah. I've hidden that sort of tatty end here. But it's quite black, isn't it? Yes, it is. I don't know what is it goes off the shelf. That's the sort of thing we can look at with our research. In, I mean, I've seen far fewer folios than Emma, but of the folios I've seen, that coming out of the box was an extraordinary thing because you saw <clears throat> you saw its this its its vulnerability, and you also saw a kind of extraordinary body of 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 knowledge going into how it's been preserved. To, you know, with those blue boards and and all the rest of it and the casing and, and everything else. So it, in a way that's what makes it is what makes this particular copy special. What's, what's really interesting about this is actually what, what gives it a real value is all its context, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah. The fact that it's been in because it's lost, <coughs> it has had that dramatic story of the theft yeah. and return. As a folio, I mean, 
you know, reading your book, for mm. example, um, as a book and the way people have engaged with it, it's not actually that interesting. Well, it had, I mean, it's an awful thing to say. It's had its most interesting time over the last 20 <coughs> yeah, years. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's actually had a pretty yeah. boring time, yeah. Of, yeah. you know, no, compared with others. Yeah. You know, yeah. the, the flip side of saying it's been in the longest single ownership is it's been sort of, you know, slumbering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And then had this awful, yeah. you know, but terribly exciting. I've been really interested to, to leap forward 100 years and what they're what they going to talk about yeah. in the first folio then. Is it going to be, be less painful, perhaps, 100 years mm. down the line? Um, and like, its defining event was perhaps the fair. On my folio roadshow, I encountered another first folio whose binding has been removed. A copy at Brandeis University in Boston, Massachusetts, was disbound in 1998 in order to digitise it. It has remained unbound ever since. But now they have a remarkable and perhaps unique opportunity. Without the challenge that Durham have about how to negotiate retaining the story of the trauma that copy experienced and the research opportunity it represents, Brandeis are considering creating a new binding. Most of the folios I have seen have fine 19th-century bindings by Riviere or Zainsdorf or Bedford. They have been fitted out to grace the shelves of august libraries and are adorned with beautiful gold tooling, hand-marbled end papers and aristocratic bookplates. Brandeis could celebrate the folio's quatercentenary year by having their first folio rebound, but in a way that does not hark back to the past, where this book was seen as an index of sophistication and exclusivity. This could be the moment to redefine how we see the first folio, not as the semi-sacred, fetishised object or relic it has inevitably become, but as a volume of contemporary relevance and immediacy, no longer defined by its binding or by the figures it can command in the marketplace. I'd love to see a modern bookbinder acknowledge the first folio's 400 years of readership, something that looks less like a Bible and more like a book of magic, tantalising, elemental, profound, something that can reflect the appeal that Shakespeare's friends John Hemmings and Henry Condell make at the start of the first folio to the great variety of readers, from the most able to him that can but spell. Shakespeare is for everyone. As the first folio enters its fifth century, Ben Jonson's description of Shakespeare still holds true. He was not of an age, but for all time. So that's it. This is the last of this short series of podcasts as I continue on my Folio Roadshow. I'm Greg Doran. Thanks for listening. <laughs>